Well, what's going on, King's Church? It's great to be with you this morning. I love uh, bringing the Word of God to you this morning. This morning, we're going to finish up our stewardship series, which we do every year uh, here at King's Church. And I hope you uh, are able to hear. We do this as best as we can tell to be faithful to the Lord and faithful to you. Um, We are called to be good stewards of uh, God's Word and also good stewards of the, the hearts of the people. And so one of the things we're talking about as we talk about stewardship is we're talking about an element, not the only element, but a pretty significant element of what it means to be faithful to God and to worship God, and that is specifically what we do with with our money and how that is an aspect of what it means to be a faithful Christian and declare to your own heart, but also to the world, what you really believe about God and how faithful he is to you. And the reality is God calls us to steward our entire lives. And so as we've been looking at this three-part series, which we finish up today, we've been talking about not simply money and giving, but we've been talking about what it means to live all of our lives as a steward. What the Bible teaches us very clearly is that we didn't create ourselves. The Bible doesn't just teach us that. We can kind of look around and figure that out for ourselves. We didn't create ourselves. God created us. He created everything that we can see, touch, smell, and things that we can't. Okay? And we are, he's given us our lives to use for him. Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about the fact that we have been created in his image. Verse 28, it says this as well. That God blessed them and said to them, it be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Another way of rephrasing that is to say that God gave us a purpose, not simply to exist, but to exist, to have dominion over the earth, which he gave to humanity, okay? And so we have a purpose, so we talked about that. We talked about how to find our purpose and, and how to live it out. We looked at John chapter 3. And then we talked about very specifically about what calls, how God calls us to give 10% of our income to the church. And then voluntary offerings on top of that. And we looked at Malachi chapter 3 last week. And we said very simply what, this, what that passage says. That if you are unwilling to tithe, that you are robbing God and also robbing yourself of the floodgate of blessings that he has available to you. One of the only times in Scripture where God says, come on, come on, test me, I dare you. See see what happens. I will shower you with blessings that you would not have seen otherwise if you hadn't been faithful. And then we're going to conclude this week um, talking about... uh, What I'm calling, the title of the sermon is The Tragedy of the Love of Money. The Tragedy uh, of the Love of Money. There is a danger. In other words, the Word of God, and Jesus is teaching it specifically, but the Word of God as a whole says that the love of money has a powerful grip on our lives. Extremely powerful grip on our lives. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it's not money that's evil, but the love, the trust, the dependence on money is the root that springs up the fruit, the tree, the weed, whatever you want to say, of all kinds of evil. And Jesus talked about it all the time. In fact... I could easily do a 10-part series just on Jesus' words as he dealt with these ideas of money and greed and things of that nature, okay? But we're not going to do that. We'll finish it up today, and then we'll return back to the Gospel of John. And therefore, this is a serious issue, and that's the reason why we talk about it every single year. Yes, we do have a budget at the church, and that is something that we're called to be stewards of, absolutely. And yes, it is a part of your worship and you need to know, but also, as your pastor, what I want you to know is that, God, that Jesus is very serious about this. And this passage is terrifying that we're about to read. And particularly, it's important for us as one of the wealthiest cultures in the history of the world. It's a struggle that we have if you live here, period, Okay. So, and again, just so that you guys know, if if you haven't received one of these, please grab one as you walk out the pledge cards, 
and um, there was some on the table, and we will also send out a link this week to make sure that you get one. And this is not just for King's Church budgeting purposes. This is a spiritual exercise to you. There's going to be lots of questions that I present to you today. I hope that this passage inspires you to ask. This is for you and your soul as well, and I hope you think about it that way, okay? All right. So, the questions that we need to ask. All right, so we're looking today, uh, something that I didn't know was native to South Carolina, or particularly grew in South Carolina that I learned this week, was the Venus flytrap. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people uh, in the room, I would say probably everybody in the room, knows about what a Venus flytrap is, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a plant, it's got a flower that hinges, kind of like this. And where my fingers are, it's got these spikes that kind of come up. And it's a, just like any other flower, it opens up and lays flat. And like several flowers, it has nectar that sits on the surface, okay? And so bugs and, and all these other things, they, that's how they survive. They survive off of nectar, and they can see it, they can smell it or sense it or whatever they do, and they go down there to eat, but the Venus flytrap has a sinister end involved, okay? It's actually, it's interesting if you look at the, the Venus flytraps, it, you think that plants are at the bottom of the food chain, with the exception of the Venus flytrap, okay? So what happens is the fly lands on the Venus flytrap, and there are six, about six to eight little hairs that are sticking up, okay, on the Venus flytrap itself. And if a fly or any other bug just taps one of those hairs, in 20 seconds, the whole thing will hinge and shut them up, okay? So if, if it taps it once, it could just be the wind, but God's designed this little flower in such a way that if the bug taps one of those hairs twice, the thing just snaps shut and then begins to close, and those fingers lock together, locking them. Then the plant automatically, instead of producing nectar, starts producing acid and breaks down the fly for its meal. Now, this is, uh, the Venus flytrap is fascinating. It's always also one of my greatest arguments to vegans, right? Like, listen, plants even eat animals. We should be able to eat animals. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, so there's that. But then if you think about it, the reality is that nectar's good. There's nothing wrong with nectar, okay? There's lots of plants that have nectar. The problem is that the unsuspecting fly has no idea of, that what's, of what's about to happen to him. He feels safe. It's just like any other flower, right? But what he doesn't know is he's sitting in a plant that's got the, literally the jaws of death are around him. And what Jesus teaches here in this passage is that the love of money can be very similar. The love of money can be very similar. It can, it can seemingly provide safety. It can seemingly provide pleasure. But the reality is if you're not careful, you're sitting in the jaws of death itself. Mark chapter 10, it's a passage that we'll be reading this morning. Very popular passage if you've been around church uh, for a while. If you haven't, uh, glad that you're here. The passage will be printed for you in your, uh, in your bulletin that you received when you walked in if you'd like to follow along. Uh, but this is God's word. Now begin reading Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Jesus started on his way, and a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciple, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said it again. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand together. It will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're a prayer. Is the same uh, every time we get together. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. Father, that as we examine your word, that you would be with me and that you would be with us. That we would worship you through understanding and transformation over your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a big idea. You ready? The love of money is extremely dangerous, and it could easily send you to hell. The love of money is incredibly dangerous, and could easily send you to hell. The love of money is something that we need to take really seriously and guard ourselves against. Like I mentioned just a minute ago, our hearts are extremely susceptible to the love of money. The love of money can blind us to the reality of who Jesus is. The love of money can blind us to the reality of our sin, and the love of money can lull us to sleep and make us feel safe when we are far from safe. What I want for you today is I want for you, maybe while we're together here, and we're looking at this word together, or maybe it's later on this afternoon, to evaluate your heart. Ask yourself some serious questions. I want you to ask yourself how you think, how you feel, and how you spend the money that God has blessed you with. Do you find security and safety in what you have, specifically your money? Do you find your hope in the money you have or the money you hope to have one day? Are you a generous person? Why? Well, why not? Are you robbing God in tithes and offerings? Are you doing it for a love of money, or are you doing it because of the illusion of safety that the money provides? These are questions that I, that I hope you'll have time today, maybe even right now, to ask yourself. But this morning, I've got six lessons from this passage that are going to help us evaluate our heart. Okay? Number one, sincerity is not enough to save your soul. Number two, Goodness is a standard that you cannot achieve. Number three, total trust in Jesus is enough to save your soul. Number four, the tragedy of the love of money. Number five, the false security that wealth brings. And number six, the reward of leaving everything to follow Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, and I'm glad you are, I'm going to go through them again, so don't worry. All right? I'm going to go through them again. But let's look at the first one. You ready? Number one this morning. Sincerity is not enough to save you, okay? Sincerity is not enough to save you. Look at verse 17 again here in this passage. It says, as Jesus started up on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the context of this passage is that Jesus has been in ministry for a while now, okay? Now, when we were in John chapter 3, we're looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when things are kind of just getting cranked up and a few of his ministries and teachings are off the ground. Where we are in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospels is things are in full bloom, okay? Jesus has done already so many wondrous things. He's had mass teachings where thousands of people have come and sat on a hillside and listened to him teach. I can guarantee you this, if I sent a message out this morning and told you that the air conditioning was broken, we'd have a lot less people in here right now. But people were flocking to Jesus Christ, sitting on the ground in the grass to hear him teach. He was healing people all over the place, sometimes thousands, 
he was casting out demons. He was restoring sight to the blind and, and the smooth skin to the, to the lepers and opening people's tons of things. He also fed 5,000 people with basically a small lunch on two occasions. And then he fed, well, excuse me, he fed 5,000 one time and 4,000 the next time. In front of his disciples, the whole public didn't get a chance to see that. Everybody got a chance to see the other stuff. In front of just his disciples, he's walked on water. Um, and he's transfigured. Now, that's a strange word. He's, he, his appearance almost completely changed when he let a few of the disciples get a picture of who he really was in all of his glory. And then shortly after that, one of his disciples, kind of the point man, Peter, confesses, you're the Messiah. You're the one. Okay? So all that's what's happened up to this point. So it would be enough to say that Jesus is at the height of his ministry. So he, you could not be in Israel and not know about Jesus at this point. And this man had heard about Jesus, and he runs up to Jesus and falls down at his feet, and he is completely sincere. Now, people can fake it. You know, people can get down to Jesus, and maybe they're begging. Maybe he's just doing it for show. But I really think he's sincere, and I think he's sincere specifically because of something we'll get to in just a minute where Jesus looks at him and loves him, okay? I think he is sincere, coming to Jesus and, 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 um, and asking these questions that he brings before him. And this was not an uncommon occurrence in the life of Jesus. Several people have gone to extraordinary lengths to get in front of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 2, uh, a friend of a paralytic, a man who couldn't walk, dig through someone's roof, roof and lower him down just to get in front of Jesus Christ. A leper screams and to, for Jesus to help him. Um, um, uh, two blind men yell, uh, trying to get Jesus' attention so that he'll touch their eyes and allow them to see. And a sick woman presses through the crowd when she wasn't supposed to be touching anyone just so that she can touch the edge of his cloak. And she was healed as a result. And there are a bunch of other ones that I left out. Okay? People are trying desperately to get to Jesus. That's what's not unique about this passage. Several people do this kind of thing to Jesus. Here's what's unique about this passage, is that this man left, with what he didn't ask, left without Jesus doing anything. That's what's terrifying about this passage. Is that every, all those other people came to Jesus in sincerity, and they left seeing the power of God in his life. This man came with sincerity, but no faith, no trust, and he left sad. It's a big difference. Sincerity and a genuine sense of desperation are not enough to save your soul. But they can get you on the right track. And they can get you in front of Jesus. The posture of this man was a posture of desperation and dependence upon Jesus. The problem is, that wasn't the reality of his heart. And we'll find that later. We find out that he was actually trusting something else. And here's what we know. We know that he was deeply concerned and troubled, and we know that he was sincere. He was sincere and concerned, but that wasn't enough. And here's something that you need to know. That you can sincerely believe in something and still go to hell. It doesn't matter that you're sincere. It matters the thing that, you're, if the thing that you believe in actually works or not. You can be sincerely attached to the wrong thing and it won't help. Sincerity is not God's standard for salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance is God's standard for salvation. Y'all hearing me? Amen? This often happens for people that, that believe false things. Our temptation very often is, is to confuse sincerity with true faith. They're not the same thing. Okay? Imagine this situation. Imagine that there's, you're, you live in a coastal town that often gets bombarded by hurricanes. 
And, and here you, you watch the news and then you find out here comes a hurricane. It's coming and it's a real one. They're the meteorologists are all saying and the, the, the governor says evacuate the area. Everyone's serious. They boarded up their houses, can't buy plywood anywhere. And you're getting ready to pack your car and you call your grandma. You say, Grandma, come on, get in the car. It's time to go. We're going to get in the car. We're getting out of here. A hurricane's coming. And she says to you, I'm not leaving. I heard a voice of God. And the voice of God told me to camp out in the front yard in a tent, and I'm going to be okay. Right? And you're like, no, Grandma, I, I know you're super spiritual. That's great, but we're, you need to get in the car. We're getting out of town. And she's like, no, God told me to set up a tent and to sit in the front yard. Now, you love your grandma. What are you going to do? You're going to go grab Granny. You're going to throw her in the car, and you're going to get out of the area because a Class 5 hurricane is coming down the corridor. Right? Sincerity is not enough. She sincerely believed something. She was just wrong. Right? We actually had a conversation around the dinner table right now about a, about a, a cult. They have false doctrine um, that they believe wrongly about God. They're real close. The, the, the trick with cults is this. They almost get it right. That's the hard part. And this particular one teaches baptismal regeneration. And what that means is you're saved in a large part by your baptism, which you won't find in Scripture. Okay? But the problem with this passage, what's so terrifying about it, is he was almost there. And he still shot an air ball. Sincerity is not enough. The problem is we're not talking about grandma and a tent in the front yard, we're talking about eternity. And the stakes are even higher. And we might accept someone's sincerity is enough. But I can promise you this, God doesn't. And hopefully we love our friends and family enough to tell them that if they are in a place that's almost close to the truth, but not the truth itself. Jesus, this man trusted Jesus almost enough. He had sincerity he saw the things that he did, but there was something else that he trusted more. How about you? Are you relying on the fact that you sincerely believe what you believe, but you don't have any proof, like the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or are you relying on the blood of Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Are you tied to an anchor or are you just sincerely believing that there's not going to be a storm coming? Point number two. Remember, the big idea today is the love of money is incredibly dangerous. And it could easily send your soul to hell. And we looked at the fact that sincerity is not enough to save your soul. And then point number two. Goodness is a standard you cannot achieve. Goodness is a standard that you cannot achieve. Verse, the last half of 17 through 20. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, it's interesting he calls Jesus good teacher. This is not a normal way that people address Jesus. They normally say teacher, or they normally say rabbi, or say something like this. This wasn't a, a thing that people typically called teacher, uh, but I don't, I don't know if that's the big deal. I think it's interesting here that Jesus takes this moment when he says good teacher to start planting a seed. At the beginning of the conversation, he's planting this seed about the fact that this guy's relying on something besides him. Okay? When he says, why do you call me good? And Jesus was doing this all the time. Jesus was doing this all the time. The main thing that Jesus was fighting back then is the same thing that he's fighting to these days. And it's that we believe intuitively, we get it from birth, that we can just work our way to heaven. And so this was constantly the battle that Jesus was having uh, in his ministry when he was talking about it. It's constantly the battle that we are in today, ourselves believing and then convincing our friends and family. Listen, I know you're trying, but it does not gonna, you can't try hard enough. It's not going to work. You can't just be good. He says that no one is good except God alone. Romans 3.10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.12 says all have turned away. They have together become 
worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it's interesting here, this is fascinating to me. Maybe you, for those of y'all who are in community groups, y'all can probably talk about this more. But it's interesting, did you notice that if you've ever had a chance to look at the Ten Commandments, Jesus lists several of them here, but not all of them. Isn't that interesting? I think that's for a reason. He starts off, he starts off talking about commandments six through nine. Okay? Do not, or excuse me, five through nine. Honor your father and mother. Uh, do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Okay? Uh, and he adds, do not defraud. Don't steal, don't steal something from your people. It's basically another way to say uh, don't steal. It's interesting to me that he left out one through four and ten. Okay, one through four have to do with loving God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Have no idols. Honor the Lord's name and honor the Sabbath. And then, ta- then ten has to do with don't covet. He left out the ones that have to do with your heart and included the ones that had to do with your actions. Interesting. Okay? All right? So it, it's, I think this is one of the reasons that, in other words, Jesus summarizes the law of God in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37, like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love, the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All right? So theologians break up the uh, Ten Commandments into the, what they call the first and second table. So what I'm about to tell you, you can impress your friends with at dinner parties, all right? First table, people call, of the law is one through four. It has to do with us and God. And then the last, half, and then, then basically five through ten, have to do with our neighbor. And that's why Jesus summarizes this, um, summarizes this, except actually you can technically count ten as part of loving God and neighbor. That's the, I think that's why Jesus avoids it. But anyway, he just, start, he just does the neighbor stuff. Why does he do that? Well, very often when Jesus encounters someone, especially an expert in the law or a Pharisee or a religious person, their main struggle is love for neighbor. In fact, uh, an expert in the law in Luke chapter 10 comes up to Jesus and asks the exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, he gives him this summary, hey, love God, love neighbor. And he goes, who's my neighbor? Because he, like all Jews, were struggling with the fact that there was a groups of people that they hated and that they thought they were better than. And they didn't want God to oblige them to have to love them and serve them. And so Jesus pointed to the error of the, their error there. Okay, So maybe that's why he starts. I don't know. But the reality is, as we'll see in a minute... This man was not tripped up by his love for his neighbor. As far as we know, he was pretty good at that. He was tripped up with love for God with all his heart. We all know that good behavior is not enough to make you happy. Now, you may not even be willing to confess that with your mouth. Maybe you're still here and you're sitting down and you're evaluating what I'm saying and you're asking yourself questions and you're sitting there thinking... You know, I'm not so sure. I think that, I don't know what I believe about that, but the reality is, just like this man, we all know deep down that we're not good enough. And this man, it had been bugging him so long that he ran up to Jesus and got on his knees and begged him. We all know this man was extremely moral and good person, and he had a deep discomfort in his soul. And Jesus lovingly shows the man that his righteousness is like filthy rags. And standing before the Father, he's guilty. He confirms the doubt that this man had in his mind. How about you? Please, don't rely on the fact that you're a good person. You're not. You know you don't love God with all your heart. Let me give an example. Let's think about mother. If I was to think about the best person in the history of the world, in my mind, the first one that came to my mind was Mother Teresa. Now, I don't know what Mother Teresa believed. I didn't know Mother Teresa. I haven't read any of your books or any of her statements of belief. Okay? But let's, let's put that aside and let's say that she was just trying to get in based on her good life. And I don't know if you can live a better life. 
She devoted her life to lepers, to serving them. She was one of the most sacrificial and serving human beings in the history of the world. I don't know her beliefs, but I know this. Even her deeds weren't enough. Don't rely on yours. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Talking about Saul. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus in this section is setting the man up to show him how he has failed the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay? The love of money is incredibly dangerous and can easily send your whole soul to hell. Sincerity is not enough. Good is a standard you can't achieve. And number three, total trust in Jesus is enough to save your soul. Total trust in Jesus is enough to save your soul. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow him. Isn't it fascinating? Jesus looked at him and loved him. The Hebrew here is really, I mean the Hebrew, the Greek here is very helpful. The word emblepo means fastened his eyes on. Okay? Isn't it amazing what you can do when you look into someone's eyes? How much you can see? What we can do with our look and what we can do with people's look? It, you know, if you look deeply into someone's eyes, if you're trying to figure out if they're telling you the truth, and oftentimes they can't look you in the eye, you know that's a problem. Or sometimes you can really look into someone's eye, maybe see some of the sincerity about you. And, and mothers, you know this, fathers maybe too, you can give your child the look. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Y'all remember growing up and getting the look from, my mama had a good look. She could, she could go like that, and I knew it, boy, you better straighten up. You better straighten up. Spanking's coming real quick if you don't, right? This powerful look. But it's interesting in this passage, Jesus looks at him and he sees, in my opinion, based on my reading of the text, real sincerity. And then he says he loved him. And that word there is agape. It's not friendship love. It's not romantic love. It's deep, deep love that God describes as the kind of love between Jesus and God himself. And the discernment of Jesus, he can see deeply into his eyes and Jesus has got more than discernment. He has divinity. He could see deeply into his soul. He saw the sincerity behind his request for eternal life. And then Jesus could see what was really holding him back. And he says to him, one thing you lack, go sell everything and give what you have to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, Jesus is saying several things here in this statement, and, I, and I, follow me, all right? Follow me, okay? Now, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is not inventing a new standard of righteousness. In other words, here's the ticket. If you'll just give everything you have away and, and give it to the poor, then you'll get to heaven automatically. That's not what Jesus is teaching here, okay? Um, he's specifically looking into this man's heart, and he sees the barrier, and he's asking him the question, do you love God more than everything else? God must be your treasure, and God must be your security. The life, this life is a test of obedience for our love for God, and it will be rewarded in heaven. And the question is, do you really believe that? Jesus is asking if the man really recognizes who he is. That's really what's going on here. Because if God makes a command of you, you do it. Jesus isn't saying, listen, this is the thing you need to do to have eternal life. If all y'all just give you all your money away, then you'll definitely have eternal life. What Jesus is saying is, do you recognize who I am standing in front of you right now? The disciples did. This is not an uncommon thing for Jesus to ask of the ones that he asked to follow him at this point in time in history. To leave everything and follow him Peter, as I mentioned a minute ago, had already confessed and left everything. 
and follow Jesus. This is not something new. It's just something he couldn't handle. Jesus is also inviting him to be one of his closest friends and gives him an opportunity to change the world, which he walks away from. Most of y'all have probably seen this movie. One of my favorite movies is Rudy. Y'all love Rudy? And uh, it's a story of a guy that gets, you know, five feet tall and small and can't play football, but he wants to play for Notre Dame, which at the time was the best best school in the world, in the world for football. And the whole movie's great. At the end of the story, he does all kind of stuff, and he finally gets to dress in the uniform and get on the field. And he never thinks he's going to play. This is his dream come true. He should never have been a college athlete, and here he is. And at the end of the movie, they say, Rudy, get in the game. And he runs out on the field. And if you've seen the movie, you know it's incredible. He got to play. Well, that's what Jesus is inviting this man to. And what he's inviting you to. And this man walks away. Why? Love of money. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking of this man. He's saying, do you believe in me? That I exist? That I'm the Messiah? And he's saying, do you believe that I'm going to reward you? Or do you believe that you can reward you? That's what's happening here. To be a Christian, to be saved from the fires of hell is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To be a Christian is to believe and trust in Jesus so much that everything's on the table in your life, if he asks for it. To believe that everything in your life, that everything you have is an investment in your eternal future and God will richly reward you. And the question that we're asking is, do you trust Jesus like that? Do you trust Jesus like that? The answer to that question, let me ask you this. What in your life, if God asked for it, would you say no? What in your life, if God says, give me that, would you say no? Whatever that is, you just found your God. You just found what you really worship. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is asked to do the ultimate thing. Sacrifice his son. It blows my mind. And he goes in faith that God has enough power to raise him from the dead. That's what the book of Hebrews says. He be- nothing was on the table, that was not on the table, rather, for Abraham. And this is what God is asking of you. Total trust, complete trust, unwavering trust that Jesus Christ is the only thing to save your soul. But this was a price that was too high for this man to pay. The love of money is incredibly dangerous and could easily send your soul to hell. Sincerity is not enough. Goodness is a standard we can't reach. Total trust is the key. And then number four, the tragedy of the love of money. So many of you are aware of great theater plays that are in this classification, this genre called the tragedy. What comes to my mind is Romeo and Juliet. They're trying to get away to live a life of love together, and then because of some miscommunication, they both end up killing themselves, and the whole thing ends in this tragic, tragic mess. Shakespeare wrote a lot of these. This one's worse. Verse 22 and the man, at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. He looked at the Son of God right in the eye and said, I'm good. That is gripping. He received an invitation that only few men have received in the history of the world. And he walked away. Why? Because he loved his money more than Jesus. Because he found more security in his money than he did in Jesus. 
All of the illustrations of Jesus' power and security, fed 5,000, did it, fed fed, uh, 4,000, walked on water, all these things people are seeing, demons are being cast away, all that meant nothing. He either felt secure or in love with his wealth, and he walked away. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Be content with what he's put in your life because you can never lose God if you've got it. Matthew 6, 24, here's the key. Josh alluded to it in, his, um, in the scripture lesson and in the children's sermon this morning. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money and I'm begging you not to miss this. He walked away because he served a different master than the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the creator of everything you can see, smell, and touch and the things you can't because he loved money. Money's not bad. Wealth is not evil. But loving it and trusting it will send your soul to hell. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 12. David says this, Wealth and honor come from you, God. You're the ruler of all things. But in the context of our money, whether or not we're willing to tithe 10% of it or all of those types of things, we need to ask ourselves some really important questions. If we're not willing to tithe or whatever it is, who are we trusting, really? Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed. This is verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is so disturbed by this event that he turns over to his disciples and uses it as a teaching moment. And he says to them, basically what we're saying today, y'all need to listen up, beware. The love of money is incredibly dangerous and it can send your soul to hell. And he gives this this. this illustration that's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for through a rich man to go to the kingdom of God. Have you ever seen a camel? You know, they did this play years ago out in Lexington. What was it called? This man called Jesus. Wasn't that what it's called? Right? And every year they had a, a camel. His name was Abraham. Right? And um, I, I'd never seen a camel before. They didn't have it at Riverbank Zoo. It's huge. I had no idea. It's way bigger than a horse. It's a huge animal. What Jesus is saying is he's trying to use, maybe there's a camel right over there, so that's why he picked a camel. I don't know, but he's trying to say, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then he follows that statement up by saying, but God can do the impossible. All right? But here's something that I want to get across, and this is why I'm trying to make this point, because I think Jesus makes it. If you live in America, you're rich. This is about you. Okay? America is the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. If you live here, you're in the top 99% in terms of wealth right now in the world. Certainly in human history. This is about us. Because isn't it easy if we're sitting in the pew, we're like, you're like, I ain't rich. Like, you, I ain't rich. You know what I mean? Some of this that other guy I know, he's rich. Not me. Wrong. Not if you live here. Love of money is a tragedy that can claim your soul. Sincerity is not enough. Goodness is a standard you can't achieve. Total trust in Jesus is the standard. Love of money is a tragedy. Point number five and six, quickly. The false security wealth brings. The disciples, verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is an impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, the disciples were suffering from a belief that we all suffer with, the belief that if you have wealth, it means that God loves you. If you have wealth, then it means that God has put favor on you. So they look at this man. The, Luke tells us that he's young, uh, or that he's a ruler, rather. And then Matthew tells us, they record this same event, that he's, a, that he's young and he's wealthy. And then from this passage, we know that he's wealthy. Now, what do most people spend their youth doing? 
Typically, not being righteous. But here's a young guy who's wealthy and doesn't use it on himself. And Jesus, when he says, listen, I've tried to do all the commandments, sees him as pretty sincere. And the disciples, he's probably a pillar in the community in a good way. And he shows up to Jesus and leaves without his salvation. And the disciples go, well, then who can be saved? And what he was explaining to them is something that we need to come to grips with. Most of us either have a love of money for two reasons. Either A, we like the pleasures that it can bring, and we want money because we go what it can get us, either status or, or toys or whatever it is that you love, the kid's sermon today, what do you want? Toys, you know? Adults, never changes. Same thing, our toys just sit cooler. Well, look forward to that, kids. All right, our toys just get better, right? And um, you either want it for the pleasures or you want it for the security. This guy looked at Jesus and said, that's not a safe bet. And he was wrong. The disciples looked at this guy and said, if anybody was safe, I thought it would have been him. But he wasn't. He wasn't safe at all. He felt, listen, money offers a false security. Listen, this man felt safer with his money than he did with Jesus. How safe did you feel with your money before 2007? Did you feel pretty good about it? How safe did you feel about your money or the American economy before COVID-19? How safe did you feel about your money before the last election? It's not that safe. But this guy felt like it was. And if we're honest, we do too. Money cannot save your soul. Only Jesus can. Wealth is not proof that God loves you. Jesus' death on the cross is proof that God loves you. But God loves you. Amen? Point number, point number six. Sincerity is not enough. Goodness is a standard you can't achieve. Total trust in Jesus is the standard. The tragedy of the love of money. Wealth is a false security. And then finally, the reward of leaving everything to follow Jesus. The reward of leaving everything to follow Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter, perking up at this point, says, We've left everything to follow you. And I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me in the gospel and will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, and with them persecutions, in, and in the age to come eternal life. But the many who are first will be last and the last first. The Bible teaches that there are degrees of blessing in glory and degrees of damnation in hell. In other words, that hell is hotter for Hitler than for someone who tried to live a good life but didn't trust in Jesus. This guy, who almost got there, teaches that hell is hotter for Hitler than this guy. But it also teaches that heaven is better for those who are more obedient. Now, someone who gets into heaven by the skin of his teeth, a good southern phrase, right, is still going to live in bliss with God forever. Praise the Lord. And while and deathbed um, conversions are something we should still pray for. Amen? But the Bible does teach that everything in this life is, is, is a test of our obedience for the next one. Okay? And what I want you to do all of us live close to Lake Murray Dam, right over there. Some of you go across it every single day, right? One of my, every time I go, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, um, but I am. Every time I go across Lake Murray Dam, I see my hero. That 80-year-old man who just doesn't care anymore, you know, and is running with his shirt off, don't care, you know what I'm saying? But whenever you go across Lake Murray Dam, I want you to look to your right at all of that water, and I want you to think about this passage, and I want you to think about Malachi chapter 3, where God says the floodgates are ready to be opened up for blessings in your life and the one to come if you will trust in Jesus Christ and be obedient to what he says about everything in your life. 
including your money. And whenever God wants to, he can just open it up and the floods will pour through. That whenever you drive across that dam, you look over there and you think about the gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of blessings that God has available for you and you'll be able to drink it all in glory. Every last drop. Yeah, God calls us to sacrifice. And God calls us to trust him. And sometimes in this life we will face persecutions and sometimes we'll lose relationships. And God asks you to put everything on the table and trust him. Everything on the table. But his promises will not fail. Do you hear me? His promises will not fail. Hebrews 11:6 and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you believe in him like that? Do you trust in him like that? Then you can leave here today with real security. You can leave here today with real wealth. And this is why I wanted to conclude this year's stewardship series with this really serious warning. Money looks good and it looks safe. And it's not in and of itself bad, but it's not safe. The fly thought the Venus flytrap was safe. And he was wrong. Spend some time today. Evaluate how you think and how you feel about money. How do you think and feel about money? And then evaluate how you spend it. Do you find your security and safety in money? Do you find your hope in money? Are you a generous person? Why or why not? Are you robbing God of tithes and offerings because you love money more than him? Ask yourself these questions. Talk about it. Jesus is safer. Jesus is so much better. And here's why. Last thing I'll say. Listen to me. Jesus was not asking for a price that he didn't pay himself. He gave everything. He left the riches of heaven and came here, born to a woman in poverty, suffered under the physical pain of the cross and drank the full cup of God's wrath so that he could open wide the gates of eternity and the riches and the wealth of God to you forever. And so that you could know a man like that and be with him forever. Please, don't trust money. It's not safe. It's not better. Put everything on the table and say, if you say it, I'll give it because you're better. The love of money is incredibly dangerous. And it could easily send your soul to hell. Don't let it. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're not sure what that means, come talk to me. I'd love to help you with that. But let's worship the risen king today, the one who is the priceless treasure. And let's be rich because we have him. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for this, your word. And we pray, God, that it would bear fruit in our lives so that we can give you the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.